Well, it's good to be back in Romans 11. Now, as we mentioned when we start in chapter 9, that 9, 10, and 11 are a package. And uh, you really can't bring a complete conclusion uh, on the issue of the past, present, and future of Israel till we get to the last verse of chapter 11. And we're going to do about half of the chapter here today, and next week we'll finish that up. But um, the reason being is that Paul presents a certain idea, and then he sort of presents the opposite coin, the opposite side of the coin of that idea, and then back and forth, and finally he's going to conclude. But remember in chapter 9, he, he says, man, Israel uh, is the elect of God. And uh, God has chosen them according to his power of election. We see, for example, that before Jacob and Esau were even born, that he chose the younger over the older, that the purpose of election might stand. And then he goes on in chapter 9 to say, it's not to him who wills or him who runs, but it's upon God who shows mercy and There's a great sense of the sovereignty of God, the great sense of of election and predestination and foreknowledge. And and it's it's a powerful word there that you sort of uh, soak it in and just sort of in awe of it. But at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul says, my heart is that Israel would be saved. And then at the end of chapter 9, he says, Israel wants their own righteousness based upon the law and are unwilling to humble themselves and receive the righteousness by faith in their Messiah, Jesus. Well, then we come to chapter 10. He starts it the same way. My desire is that Israel would be saved. He ends the chapter by saying, but Israel is unwilling. But the point of chapter 10 is sort of the opposite side of the coin because we're, we're sort of in chapter 9 saying, man, that the purpose of election might stand and it's not to him who wills or him who runs, but God who shows mercy and we're sort of in awe of that. And then in chapter 10, he says emphatically several times, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call upon the Lord, God is rich to all who call upon his name. And, and he keeps saying that. And, and there in that chapter, he says, Israel in essence is not in the will of God because they're not surrendering their lives to the Lord. And you say, well, which is it? Is it the sovereignty of God or is it the, the free will of man? And, and, and Paul doesn't put it together there for us. He just sort of leaves us with going, Israel is where they're at because God has an eternal plan and Israel is right where they're supposed to be within the eternal plan of God at this moment. And you're sort of in awe. And then he says, so the opposite, on the opposite side of the coin, saying Israel's where they're at because they're unwilling to submit their lives to God. And if they are willing at this moment, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you sort of scratch your head and say, which one is it? <laughs> and, uh, and he just sort of leaves you hanging there. And, and the end of chapter 10, verse 21, he, he says, uh, the Lord speaking here out of Isaiah 65 two to Israel, he says, All day long I stretch out my hands to a disobedient. That word can also be translated unbelieving and contrary people. So God's position hasn't changed. His arms are open wide. If they're willing to come, whoever will come, let them come. I'll receive them. Now, Paul in chapter 11 sort of has the same question once again as he does in chapter 9 and 10. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. 
For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is, this is one of Paul's shorts list. You know, as you go through the, the New Testament, Paul has some pretty long lists of his Judaism. If, if you would, he's sort of a Jew on steroids. Um, you know, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees of the number one kingly tribe of the Benjamites. His name is Saul. And he studied under Gamaliel. And uh, for Zil, no one had Zil like he had. I mean, he, he, he was, if you would, the classic Jew who would never believe in the Lord. I mean, if there was somebody that you would say, here is a Jew, Jew, who would never submit themselves to a carpenter from Nazareth to be his Messiah, it would have been Saul, whose later his name was changed Paul. But yet he says, I'm an example. I'm an example that God can get a hold of the hearts of even the most obstinate of the Jewish people. And again, the question he asks is, is God done with Israel? And the answer is no. Now, this is an important question because as you remember, in chapter 8. So now we're back in chapter 8. So we may end up back in chapter 1 before we finish here today. I don't know. But remember in chapter 8, he, he, he comes in to encourage you and talking about predestination and election and, and so forth. And he says, you know, we're more than conquerors because God's love for us. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers can ever separate us from the love of God. And, and you listen to the wordage and, of course, the question would pop up in your mind... God said several of those same things to the nation of Israel. God said to Abraham, I am your God. You will be my people. Your descendants will be my people. And as you study through the Old Testament, it's forever. David, one of your sons will sit upon the throne and he shall be the king of, over Israel forever. You look at the plan that God has towards Abraham. It was a forever plan. And, and in essence, Abraham's covenant was based upon the character and the nature of God. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in essence, if God says, you know, I chose Israel, but now I'm done with Israel... Well, what would keep God from saying, I chose you, the New Testament believers, and I'm done with you. I'm going to throw you away. It would be an equal thing. So God relating to the children of Israel, connected to his nature and his character, is identical to how God's going to deal with us. The same nature, the same character. So if you don't get your theology right on Israel, I don't think you can have a right theology throughout the Bible. I think this is a very key pillar, if you would, to the house that you're building. It's a real cornerstone. And of course, we're not going to fully answer this question till next week. But here he says, is God casting them away? Certainly not. I'm a perfect example of how Jews can become believers. Now he goes on in verse 2 to say, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So we're looking at Israel today, as Paul was in his day, 
the majority of Israel were not believers. Matter of fact, it was a very small group. And maybe from your perspective, sort of like Elijah's perspective, it doesn't look like anybody's a believer but one or two. And Elijah, for several years, as he was fighting the, the pagan religion of Baal, he sort of came to the end of his rope and he said, there's nobody but me fighting this battle. Everybody has just succumbed to the peer pressure and just is following after uh, what the king uh, and the queen Jezebel want and they're just going with this wickedness and, and I'm left and I am done. And God says there's 7,000 in 1 Kings 19 and mentions prophets that are like you that have not bent their knee. So there, there was clearly a group of people in the nation of Israel when it looked like Israel had no believers. They had believers that God knew about. And this is the point in verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, and of course Paul was speaking 2,000 years ago, and I might add the same identical thing is today. At this present time, in 2010, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. I I would like to say there is hundreds of thousands of Jewish believers around the world. I I don't know that to be the case. I would say it's more in the tens of thousands. But there are thousands of Jewish believers that they, they call themselves completed Jews because they have come to know the Jewish Messiah. And here he says that throughout history... God has always held on to a remnant who have submitted to God, who have obeyed God, who have been like Elijah's, Elijah and 7,000 others. Throughout history, there's always been a remnant of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who have been true followers of God. It's typically a remnant. Very rarely is there a majority And usually when there is a majority of Israel that looks like they're submitted to God, it lasts for a very short time until they go back to being rebellious. But he did this according to, notice, the election of grace. God said, because of the promise I gave to Abraham that I would continue to work with his children, I've always held on to a remnant in every generation and will continue. Now, in verse 6, He says, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is of uh, works. It is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And that's such a clear verse. I don't really need to explain that. Um, (laughs) I think think Paul was trying to get our tongue tied on this verse, wasn't he? But but he's making it clear here. That even though Israel, as a majority, as a nation, was not submitted to the will of God, that God, out of grace, always got through to a remnant. And that, yes, it's true that men, when they receive the Lord, they, they, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. There's also the equal truth that God has grabbed a hold of the Sauls. Remember, Saul was on his way down to Damascus to arrest the Christians and and a beam of light came from and and the Lord spoke and said, Saul, Saul, um, you know, why are you kicking against the goats? Why why are you resisting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you're persecuting. And, And 
if you, if you would, saw, saw sort of an example of the election of grace where God just, wham, stopped this guy and got a hold of him and shook him until he came to his senses and he became a believer. And according to the election of grace, God throughout the Jewish history has always done that with a group of a remnant of Jews. And again, what's this demonstrate? What's the testimony of Saul demonstrate? Just the pure election of grace. Just the power of of God's hand reaching out to salvation to do whatever he needs to do. And it's sort of a powerful moment in time. And so we just sort of stand in the awe of God's grace. I mean, Paul can't boast well, I was reading through the Bible one day and I figured this all out and Jesus was it, you know, because when you calculate 10 times 12 times the power of 10 and you look at this verse and, you know, I came up, Jesus, you know, that wasn't the, the, the point of, of Saul's salvation, was it? I was stubborn, I was rebellious, I was killing Christians and putting them in prison and, and I was doing everything I could to stop Christianity and just the grace of God just nailed me. <laughs> and here I am today. Not only a believer, but an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to his grace. And grace is grace. We're saved by grace. And I think every one of us, to some degree, have a story when God's grace got a hold of us. I love Billy Graham. He used to always say that God's grace is the hound of heaven. It'll tree you and, and get you. And, and I think we all have that moment in time to realize we were stubborn and selfish and rebellious and self-righteous. And there was a moment where God's grace broke us and brought us to our knees to see our sinful condition and to humble ourselves to receive the righteousness of Christ. And we can't take credit for it. We can't say it was our efforts and God's effort combined that brought us to himself. It was God only God, by the power of his grace that brought us unto salvation. And that's why grace is grace and works is works. And you need to understand we are saved by grace, not of ourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, in verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Second Corinthians, it tells us that there's still a blindness in part upon the Israel as a, as a nationality of people. There's a spiritual blindness upon the Jews nationally uh, to this day. But here he mentions the elect have obtained it. Now, as we go back to verse 1, if you had looked there, I say then, as God cast away his people? And then he goes on talking about Israel. But now he's talking in verse 7 about the elect. And as we're going to go on, we're going to see he's no longer talking about just the people that are Israel, according to the flesh, but also the Israel that's according to the faith in Abraham. Remember in Romans 9 that he makes a clear point there that not everybody who had the blood of Abraham soaring through their veins had the faith of Abraham. Jacob, yes. Esau, no. Ishmael, no. Isaac, yes. And then he points out that we as Gentiles now can be adopted into the household of Abraham 
and become a part of his lineage according to God's view, even though we're not nationally Jewish, but yet we have the same faith of Abraham. We are Abraham's kids. And so here he's saying that the elect, all of Abraham's kids, Jews and Gentiles, we have obtained salvation by election. And then the rest, there's a blindness, an unwillingness on their part to see uh, the grace of God, the salvation of Jesus. And then he quotes Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29 here in verse 8. Just as it's written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that they, may, they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. I'll just stop there and add that there is a point in time where man's rebellion, it's not going to change. They will not believe. They will not repent. And God knows that. We can never know that. We can never say, you've passed the point of no return. No matter how many Bible studies you hear, no matter how powerful God's Spirit is upon your life, you will never repent. We can never make that distinction. But God can. And he, here as he quotes Isaiah and Deuteronomy, he mentions several times in Isaiah, where men go to the place of no return, but he's going to go and have the gospel preached to them, even though they won't believe that God has given them an opportunity, even though he knows it's going to have no effect. David, in the same way, in Psalm 69 says, there in verse 9 of Romans 11, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So these unbelieving people who will never believe, God knows that, Let it be so that their position of hardness remains even harder. This is what we saw in chapter 9 with Pharaoh. For this reason I raised Pharaoh up, that it might harden his heart, that my glory might be manifest amongst the the Israelis there, the believers, uh, the Hebrews in, in Exodus. And here he's making that statement. So in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So Paul says, take, take, take a look at the anointing on Israel nationali- as, a, as, as a nationality. That God's hand is so upon Israel. That what did he say to Abraham in, in Genesis 12? Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. It's the same word same in, the, in the Hebrew as Gentiles. All the Gentiles of the world, I'm going to bless through you. And here, God is being faithful to his promise. Through Abraham, he brought Jesus, according to the flesh, our Messiah. And here the Jews, now their Messiah has come. It said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And and there Abraham rejoiced in the salvation that would be brought to his children. But the children of Abraham, except for a remnant, have rejected the Messiah. And what did God say? Then I'm just going to give what I was going to give to my chosen people, the Jews. I'm going to give it to everybody in the world, which was his ultimate plan. But he says, look at this. If their unbelief, if their stubbornness brings such blessings to the world, what will happen 
in their fullness. Now, we're going to cover this next week, but there's going to be a point in time when Israel as a nation, almost in its totality, will believe on Jesus. And nationally, Israel will serve Jesus as the Messiah. And that's looking at eschatology, the tribulation period, the millennial reign, which I, I, I don't want to get into that, so I'm, not, I'm trying not to go too deep. But there's a point where Israel will believe, and he's saying how much more the planet Earth is going to receive the blessings through the Jews at that time. But look at now. Their unbelief, their failure has brought great riches. To give you sort of a, a little example of this, in Acts chapter 13, This is a place where Paul, each time he went into a new city, he would first go to the synagogues and preach to the Jews. As we saw in Romans 1, there we are, we got back to Romans 1. Um, He said the gospel must first come to the Jews and secondly to the Gentiles. And Paul had been doing that. And in Acts 13, verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, this is the Jewish synagogue, Many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, in verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, contradicting and blaspheming, and opposed those things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it, Judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life, believed. So we see here, this was sort of the norm in Paul's ministry. He would go to the synagogues, but typically there'd be a remnant that would believe The majority would reject, and then he would say, you've counted yourself unworthy, so now I'm going to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to them. Well, back in Romans 11, verse 13, So I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So I'm letting you guys know that I have a biased opinion here. (laughs) I love my ministry to the Gentiles. But at the same time, I have a deep, Deep burden for the Jews to also be saved. And in verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul says, it seems that that God has so anointed my ministry, yes, to reach the Gentiles, but at the same time, to cause the Jews to be jealous of, of the beautiful thing God's doing with the Gentiles, bringing them to salvation. It's sort of like if dad came home with a bunch of presents for the kids... And he sets the presents there all wrapped up in front of the kids. And the kids are like, eh, I don't really care. I'm too busy playing my Nintendo or whatever. And the dad says, okay, if you're counting this worthless, I'm just going to invite all the neighbor kids to come over. And opens the door and all the neighbor kids come over. And they start grabbing the presents and unwrapping them. And, and they, the, the kids look and they see all the cool presents. They're going, hey, those are ours. Too late. They're, I gave them the else. And it, it's sort of in this way. I, you, the Gentiles are experiencing what you Jews are supposed to be experiencing. And hopefully in that, it's provoking them to say, wow, I, I do want Jesus as the Messiah. I want that beautiful work of salvation to happen in my heart as well. Well, in verse 15, for if their being cast away is a reconciling of the world, 
What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So again, if we, we see that Israel, the majority, not accepting the Lord is bringing such life to the rest of the world, how much more when they receive the Lord is it going to be just an amazingly powerful point in time? And in verse 16, For if the fruitful, first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, Paul here is given an analogy of a tree. And he's saying if you have a fruit, a really healthy fruit on the tree, then you have to just follow it back saying the branch is healthy. If the branch is healthy, then the stem of the tree is healthy. And if the stem is healthy, then the root system is healthy. So now he's going to, he's talking about the Gentile fruit coming through the branches into the stem. And so now he's going to elaborate on this analogy in verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, referring to the Jewish branches, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Now, I just need to stop here a moment. I was raised in a a farming community, so I read this and it makes perfect sense to me, but through the years I've noticed that a lot of people don't know about the grafting into a tree. Uh, I grew up in Central California, and at one time we had a, a tree in our backyard. It was an orange tree, but yet... We had grafted into that orange tree uh, several different types of lemons, several different types of grapefruits. And you could go out on the same tree and get oranges and grapefruits and lemons and I think a few other things. You can actually take a branch from another tree and cut it in and they have special glue and tape. They get it all taped in and that branch will actually grow into the tree, but yet that branch will maintain its fruit. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Up, uh, I know when I lived there many years ago, there was a place in Fresno that boasted that they had more different fruits on one tree than anywhere else in the world. I know at that time it was like over 100, maybe 140 different types of uh, species of, of citrus on one tree. So, I mean, it can be varied. And so here he's saying that, understand what the picture is here. The root system is a Jewish root system of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, ultimately, Jesus. And that's the stem. And the natural branches are the Jewish branches. But those branches have rejected the stem, rejected the root system, rejected Jesus the Messiah, and they were broken off. Why? That a wild olive branch might be taken and grafted in. But in essence, he's saying, understand, you as a Christian right now, are bearing fruit through a Jewish system. And we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't forget that we are indebted to the Jews. It was through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants that we have received our Messiah. And our Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. And God makes no apologies for that. And we need to come to understand that this whole stem and root system is holy and it's of God and it's blessed because Abraham, the father of our faith, believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he goes on to say here in verse 18, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, now I just want to stop right there uh, at the beginning of verse 18. 
How would one boast against the branches? We have today a theological position called the amillennial position. And with that, there's various things that come from it. But one of them is what's called replacement theology. And what they do is they say that Israel as a nation means nothing. The whole Israel as a nation was just one big analogy. The analogy's over. You know, Israel, Jews, not Jews. It's, it's irrelevant. What's now is the church. So when you go back and you look at promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Israel, just replace that with those promises now belonging to the church, period. God's through with Israel. It doesn't matter what they're doing or not doing as a nation or as a people or a culture. It's, it's irrelevant. And in their theology, they have basically said that, that God has cast away Israel, that he's done with them, that they were just... Uh, a part of explaining who God is until the Messiah. And after the Messiah, all that matters now is the church. And I might add with that theology has brought horrible persecution against the Jews. For the last 2,000 years, they have been horribly treated. They have been scattered to the four corners of the world and persecuted in the four corners of the world. God said in the last days before his coming, he would regather them from the four corners of the world back to himself. That's happened in 1948. Israel became a nation. We see there as we look at prophetic scripture that Israel would have Jerusalem again. That happened in 1967. We see the prophecies that God said would happen. The impossible happened. These unconnected Jews scattered throughout the world became connected back again in the nation of Israel, which the Lord would give us an indicator this is marking uh, that we are now in the last of the last days. And in that theology, they, they have basically said the Jews are Christ killers. The Jews are the, those who have just disobeyed God and rejected God, and they end up painting them as rodents and cockroaches that need to be exterminated, that they are enemies to the whole world. And it's interesting as you travel throughout the world, anti-Semitism is everywhere. To this day, most mainline denominations hold an anti-Semitic view. There are very few groups within Christendom that are not anti-Semitic. There are very few Christian groups that say, no, God has not cast away Israel. God is not done with Israel God is still holding on to Israel nationality, nationally and, and, and it's not through with working with them as a, as a nationality, as a people. And uh, with that, has really built a wall between Christians and the Jews. I, our last trip, I mean, this is one of many experiences I've had talking with Jews, but this last trip we were in Israel, we were down at the, the Dead Sea. We were there at the Hava factory and people like shopping. I've been there and done that too many times. And uh, so I was drinking a Coke and sort of standing by the, the cashier. And, and uh, there was a few people there. And there was a, a young girl there, found out she's 21. And uh, we began to talk and I began to share Christ with her. And, and she began to tell her a story at, at 18 she, because she was a part of this kibbutz, she got her portion of, of the kibbutz, which was millions of dollars. 
She was a millionaire uh, the day she was born. She took the money. She traveled around the world, lived throughout Europe, lived throughout America, went everywhere, did it all. By 21, she's back, you know, been there several months at the Hava factory, just running a cashier, you know, running a cash register, bored out of her mind, and just basically has given up on life. Like, what's, what's left? Got all this money, and I don't want to use any of it, don't want to go anywhere, don't want to do anything, and just sort of stuck existing. And I began to share the Lord with her, and, and at one point she stopped and got teary-eyed and just so deep, so bitter. She goes, do you believe that we are the Christ killers, that we murdered Christ? And I could just tell she was so hurt. She had been told that uh, on more than one occasion. And, and I was just so glad to tell her that, you know, it wasn't the Jews, it wasn't the Italians, <laughs> the Romans. In Acts chapter 2, it tells us plainly, it's our sins that put Christ to death. Was there political and religious things that got Christ on the cross? Yes. But what ultimately killed him was our sins. And uh, I'll tell you what, that's the last message we want to get to any people group in the world. Is is that there's some hatefulness towards them. And here he is saying, let's not boast against the branches. Let's not ever stand against the branches. And in Genesis 12, it stands, those who bless the seed of Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse the seed of Abraham will be cursed. And we as believers, even though we are experiencing the blessings of the Jews, we don't want to sneer at the Jews saying, ha ha, you know, we're more kids of God right now than you are. We're experiencing more blessings uh, as the children of God than you are. No, we do not want to boast against the branches. But if you do boast, back in verse 18, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And what is that root system again? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unto Jesus, the Messiah. And in verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Oh, God broke off some Jewish branches that us, the Gentiles, could be grafted in. There's some pride in that. Well said. You're right. God really loves you. You are really special. He made room for you. And he's, he's proud of that fact. And rejoice in that. But remember why those branches were broken off in verse 20. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. So those branches were broken off because they would not put their faith in Christ. You were grafted in because you put your faith in Christ. And then he ends verse 20 by saying, Do not be haughty. But fear. Again, the word fear in in our language often gives the first meaning of fear. It's like being afraid of, you know, somebody with an axe chasing you to kill you or something. You know, that's not the word fear here. The word fear here is to be in awe, to be in reverence. And just not to be haughty, but just to realize the awesomeness that we are saved. Guys, it it is just a miracle of miracles of miracles that your stubborn, evil, rebellious heart has submitted to God. If you're a born-again believer here today, you, you are the greatest miracle on planet Earth. We don't need to see anybody healed or raised from the dead or any other thing. You are a living miracle that your stubborn, wicked, rebellious, self centered 
self-consumed, self-righteous heart came to the point to say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And you humbled yourself and said, Jesus, I'm no longer the Lord of my life. You be the Lord of my life. We need to remember what a miracle that is. And a lot of times time has, has a way of minimizing things. You know, you can sometimes got to remember your wedding day, right? To remember how wonderful it is to be married, you know? You need to remember the day the kids were born and how special that was to sort of not minimize their present existence. <laughs> I'll go no farther. You know, we, we, there's points we need to just stop and, and remember that point in time when miracles of miracles of miracles, God's grace reached my stubborn heart, and I'm grafted in, but I have nothing to boast except in the goodness and the grace and the love of God. And my only burden is that everybody could experience what I have with Jesus, that everybody could know the forgiveness and the love, and the, and the fellowship, and the knowledge of him through his word and prayer. And I, I don't want anyway want to boast and say, ha ha, I'm born again and you're not. That's ridiculous. And in verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Now this is starting to get a little dicey here. Remember God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in essence, the way God has dealt with Abraham and his children is the way God's going to deal with us as New Testament believers. And we've got to stop and remember, God cut some of the branches of Israel off. And he's saying, if I did that with Israel, guess what? I can do that with you also. And in verse 22, therefore consider, calculate it out, the goodness of And the severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Oh, my goodness. You know, I thought things were starting to get sorted out here. I thought it was starting to, you know, get together. And I was getting it together in this night basket and and coming together in this nice little neat theology. and, And all of a sudden, Paul just sort of, scatters it all again here and 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 I, I just see two clear distinctions and I, I don't really know how to put them together. The goodness of God, you've explained that, Brian. You know, that you call upon the name of the Lord, you're saved and God will never leave you nor forsake you and where, where your sin abounds, his grace abounds more and if we sin, we can confess our sin. He's faithful and righteous, forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, the goodness of God, I, I love that, I've got that. Well, there's also the severity you got over here. And that is, if you continue in his goodness, then you won't experience the severity. But if you don't continue in the goodness, then he may cut you off, as the branches of Israel were cut off. And you say, ah, I don't like that. I just like the goodness part. Let's go back to the goodness part. Let's forget about the severity part. We can't. And we all see it here clearly in this verse. Paul is bringing tension. Throughout the scripture, every theology brings attention. Because we are in sinful flesh. We need the tension. 
I love the way Francis Schaeffer describes it. He says there, there are two separate pillars. You have the election, predestination, the, the goodness, the sovereignty of God as one pillar clearly established. But over here you have the other pillar of man's free will, free choice. You reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. And, and the severity of God. We, we see them separately. And, and Francis Schaeffer says we see these giant pillars going up. And then we see them turn slightly towards one another. They're not straight pillars. They have a little bend in them. And the bend, we know by physics, are going to eventually touch one another. But he says as soon as they bend towards one another, they go into the clouds. And he said, right now, we see in part, we know in part, one day at the foot of Jesus, when we have a better mind than we have right now, and we're no longer in these sinful bodies, we'll fully understand it. But until then, we need the tension. In this human flesh, we need the tension. It's like a guitar. You know, you have two tremendously uh, set points with a lot, they have to handle a lot of pressure on each end. Now, when you first put guitar strings on, they're all just sort of flabbing there. There's no music at all, right? You got to start putting tension on those guitar strings. Now, you just can't put any old tension on the guitar strings, can you? It, it won't make a, a beautiful sound. You have to have an exact tension. You know, you got to get that E chord. Until you, you get that. That note, and you go through all of the strings. In essence, when we are living in this life, we, we need both tensions. There's times that we're camped out over here under the, the sovereignty pillar. <laughs> we build our tent here. We say, this is all I need to know about. This is where I want to live. But then things start getting out of tune. You know, in every area of our life, there's tension. I mean, we got, we got gravity Gravity's wonderful. It helps us walk and not float around, you know. But we know the goodness of gravity. We also know about the severity of gravity, don't we? Especially if we're looking over a 2,000-foot cliff. And, of course, we know the gravity from, the, from the, the gravitational forces from the moon is what keeps the oceans in its place. If that moon, the gravitational pull between us and the moon changes even a little bit, the whole earth would be covered in water if we go move it a farther and, and lessen it it would be covered in water if we move it and bring it more intense there'd be these giant tidal waves and the whole earth would be cataclysmic covered, covered in water but also we, we look at any area I mean if you have a job and you're in construction every day you're putting tension on your body and, and that tension causes your muscles to stay tuned up but if you're behind a desk eight hours a day, you have to make tension in your life, don't you? You have to say, I've got to go out and force myself to put tension on my muscles or they'll atrophy. Without that tension, we become unhealthy in this human flesh. The same relationally, every relationship. You know, the, the, the joy that we're striving for in relationships is to get closer and closer with that person until we know them so well and we intimately know them. But as we get to know them, it becomes less and less formal, doesn't it? And that's the whole point. We're learning them in this, this great informality until we can just let our hair down and be ourselves and, you know, not have to 
try to dress up or, or look special for them. But on the same token, that can go too far until we start getting rude and taking them for advantage and treating them like an old hat. And what typically happens when that happens in, in, in a marriage relationship, all of a sudden, one of them gets real quiet, you know? And the other guy's walking on eggshells like, what's wrong? What did I say? What did I do? Ah, you know, and please pass the salt and thank you very much. Let me open the door. And, you know, you look, you know all of a sudden a formality comes back into the relationship. And it, it, so there's informality, but there, it can't go too informal. But you don't want so formal that you lose that informality. That tension brings you to a healthier relationship and respect towards one another. And you can just go down with every aspect of life. We need that tension. I think of Hezekiah. There he was dying of an illness. He had been a a great king, but his entire time as reigning as king was one problem after the next, after the next, after the next. And finally, he had a moment of peace and he got sick. (laughs) And God said, Isaiah, go in and tell him to get his household in order. He's coming home. He's going to die from this illness. And when Hezekiah heard of it, he's like, no, this isn't fair. You know, I was a king but never enjoyed it and, and now I'm gonna die. And, and, and God said, Isaiah, go back and tell him. He's got 15 more years to live and I'm gonna make him 15 years of peace. Well, Hezekiah was always this amazingly godly man and such a, he went would, would down into the records as probably one of the most godly kings of Judah. But when he got out of that illness, he called to the kings of Babylon and said, come down and showed them all their secret places and all their treasuries. And Isaiah came out and said, Hezekiah, what'd you do? And he told him, he said, oh, the word of the Lord, this nation will now be destroyed and your children will be in captivity because you did this. And you know what Hezekiah's answer was? God said, I got 15 years of peace, right? Yeah, okay, no worries. All of a sudden we saw this ugly side of Hezekiah we had never saw when the tension was gone the flab came out and he, he he was this godly man this radical godly king when the tension was there when the tension wasn't there all of a sudden we saw this very self-absorbed individual who didn't even care about his kids in the same way with us, there's, there's a point when people come and they're just sort of down on themselves saying, I'm just so weak and I'm struggling and, and I, I just can't seem to make it as a Christian. I want to say, hey, get your eyes over on the pillar of the sovereignty of God. You know, the wonderful thing when we become born again believers, we say, Lord, come and be the Lord of my life. We open that door, we step in and we realize, oh my goodness, I'm a part of an eternal plan. As soon as I say, Lord, be the Lord of my life, I realize he called me before the foundations of the world. Before time began, he knew me. He knows every hair upon my head. There, look at there, Ephesians 2. He sees me seated together with him in heavenly places. Wow, this is radically, he's not stuck with me. <laughs> he chose me. You know, often we think, you know, I mean, God was really sorry about the day I discovered Christianity because <laughs> I got saved and now he's stuck with me whether he likes it or not, huh, you know. God never feels that way. He knew you before time and at the end of time. He, he wants you. He desires you. And get over here on the, look at the sovereignty. You're out of tune. You're over here on the, 
the, the free will pillar and you're focusing on yourself and we need to, you need to focus on the sovereignty of God. But then there's times where people over here in the sovereignty of God saying, ah, it doesn't matter what I do. God already knows my sins. He's already paid for them and live and let live. I'm not living a holy life. I'm not on fire like I once was. I'm not seeking the Lord like I once was. But hey, the grace of God's gonna cover it all. Don't worry about it. And that person, you say, whoa. Just like Paul said right here, don't be haughty but fear. And understand, you're not just dealing with the sovereignty of God here, the goodness of God. You also are dealing with the severity of God. And you need to look over there and realize life is short. You're being unfruitful. And also, if you continue in his goodness. Paul has a couple other places where he mentions that. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 There, sort of in the middle of a thought in verse 22, but he goes on mentioning how the Lord's going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, verse 22 or 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded, steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. And then in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, why it's called today, lest any of you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, here it again, if we hold fast, or if we continue, the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And in essence, he's saying the same thing as he's saying here in, in Romans, is that, hey, you, 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 you can't say that my free will has no issue here. It does. And see, this is what people do. Some people say, it's all about this pillar. And I'm going to write books and, and books and volumes explaining the sovereignty of God and the predestination election. And typically, they quickly leave the Bible and they start going with intellect and, and, and their type of logic. And they begin explaining things that the Bible never explains. But in essence, what are they doing with the sovereignty of God? They're trying to say, forget about the tension. Ah, free will, it's a footnote, it's irrelevant. It's like a, a guy with a BB gun trying to blow up a tank. Don't worry about the free will stuff. Blah, no tension. And we don't want a theology that, that, that doesn't create the tension. And we say, no, I'm not going to accept that. There's other people over here, the same thing. It's all about free will. And they put all this pressure on people until people are ready to crack. And they have over here this little footnote about the sovereignty of God going, yeah, it's in the Bible. Not sure what to do about that. Uh, We'll talk about that every 10 years when we get to it. But here, you need to focus on you. And that's an unhealthy tension. And, And we need to, as believers, say they're both there. How to put them together? I don't know. And I think if we try to explain it away, we're trying to explain the tension away. And the tension is what we need. And here we, we, we see here in Hebrews 3, he says, understand that sin is deceptive. Sin can harden your heart. Sin can cause you to be so deceived and so hardened that you depart from the living God. And you remember the, sever- the severity of God. It's those who hold fast to the end. Become partakers of Christ. Like in Colossians, he's going to present you holy and without blame if you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope. And so you you say, well, which one do I focus on? Both. There's a perfect tune here, guys. You don't want to be sharp. You don't want to be flat. 
You, you want to be in that, that perfect place and you say, well, how do I get there? You know, I think, I think it just day by day. I think we wake up in the morning sometimes out of tune on the flat side and sometimes out of tune on the sharp side. And as we go through the scriptures and God feeds us through his word, every day he causes us to focus in, in an in-tune way upon the goodness and the severity of God. But the point he makes here in verse 22 is that if you are not focused on the goodness and the severity of God, you're going to become haughty and you're going to lose that reverence, that awe, that fear of God. And that's going to take you to an unhealthy place like Israel was in an unhealthy place and the branches were broken off. That same thing can happen in your life. Don't let that happen. And in verse 23, back in Romans 11 and if they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive trees? Listen to the final couple of verses here today. What does Paul say? Guys, there's hope for every one of us. If you're a Jew here today hearing this message, understand the goodness of God. You're you're not at a place that you're so blinded that you can never see. Yet there may be a blindness at this moment, but now you've heard this message and God's opening your eyes and believe God will take that branch and graft it back in again. Jesus' arms are open wide right now for you to come unto him and be saved. Maybe you're a wild olive branch and you have been cut off. And you're here today depressed going, man, I've just so blown it as a Christian. I've just become so lackadaisical. I've become so carnal. I've lost all passion towards God and the word and prayer and seeking him and witnessing and living the life. And I've got all these fleshly carnal things that have come to my life. And you know what? Just give me a bullet and let me end this thing. You know, there's no hope for me. Guys, that's a lie from the pit of hell. There is no one that's past hope. If you're listening right now, just repent. And you'll find God grafting you right back in and connecting you right back to him. He is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him, we cannot bear fruit. But as we abide in him, we bear much fruit. And thus prove ourselves to be disciples. Amen. Well, Lord, we thank you for this word today. And we know it's not easy. We know it's not without question. I, I know I did not explain it perfectly. And we're all walking out of here going, boy, I got this down perfectly now. I don't think we ever will. I, I think we will continue to just see the clear two pillars without a complete connection. But we understand the tension is necessary. That in our sinful human flesh, we need to see your goodness, but we also need to understand our free will and the severity of our choices and how it can bring about fruitlessness, even to the point our heart being hardened, departing from the living God. And and Lord, if there's any here today in that place, you brought him there today to hear your word and heal them. Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus right now that you would give them faith to surrender their life to you or back to you. As we're all here right now, if you're a Jew or Gentile, if you're 
a branch abiding or you've been cut off or you've never been grafted and this is your time right now. God, I am a sinner. My sins have separated me from you. And I know that I am not where I need to be. I'm not in harmony with myself or at peace with my God. And I want to repent right now that my self-centered, selfish, self-consuming ways have kept me from being in that place with you. And right now I yield myself to you. Forgive me. And I, I see the smile on your face. I know the joy of you just lavishing your grace upon me. I receive it. Your forgiveness, your love, your acceptance. Receive me into yourself. And thank you for your word today. And thank you for giving us grace to to sit here for such a long time and listen. And and just cause grace to abound all day long. And bring us back here tonight as we're in Joshua to, to hear and respond to all the things you've spoken to us this day. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. God's great grace upon you today. Thank you, Lord. Yes, great word. Have a wonderful day and go Chargers.